You are listening to Future Net Zero, a platform to help businesses and the wider community improve our lives and our planet by achieving net zero. Welcome to our new podcast series, Gaia Says No, Africa, in which we will explore the nature and impact of human behaviours on the continent. Welcome to the third episode of Gaia Says No, looking at the continent of Africa. In this episode, we're going to look at one of the things I think is vital as the world changes and Africa changes is the energy transition, the movement from whether it be fossil fuels, uh, nuclear, whatever, to more renewable sources. We know the globe is is, is shifting uh, on its axis regarding this, but what's happening in the continent of Africa? Uh, to join me in this discussion, as usual, I've got William Pollan from Invest in Africa, who's actually in Africa this week. Is that right, William? Correct, Summit. I join you from Ghana. Excellent. Wow. We'll, we'll discuss how you got out there as a secret squirrel, but uh, uh, you're, you're here to talk to a, a few of your uh, sort of colleagues in Ghana. Is that right? Is that how you, you, you're out there now? That's right. It's top secret stuff. <laughs> And we're still uh, joined by Stanley Naomi. Stanley, how are you from from Sweden? Stockholm callings. How are you, Stanley? I am doing well, thank you. Stanley's our sustainability expert who, who was on last week, and 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 I think you know last week's conversation was great, Stanley. Uh, I think the thing that was really interesting was your your take on kind of how the politics of it all sits in, and I think that will be an interesting one when we talk about energy transition this week as well, won't it? You can't talk about energy without talking about politics, at least not in Africa. <laughs> That's very true. And we're joined by a special guest today uh, from Nigeria, from Lagos, uh, Dr. Amy Janisemi, uh, who runs the LADOL Initiative. Amy, how are you? Very well. Thank you for having me. No, my pleasure. Could you explain to the audience what the LADOL Initiative is? So LADOL is a free zone, um, aka a special economic zone in Lagos, Nigeria, um, privately developed over the last 20 years from a disused swamp into an industrial complex that is one of the um, biggest of its kind in West Africa. We primarily do logistics and um, fabrication and integration. The zone is being expanded over the next three, four years to bring in exclusively non-oil and gas clients and turn it into a sustainable industrial special economic zone that's driven by a circular economy between the tenants in the zone. I mean, when people think about um, Nigeria, those of us who know very little about it, we do think of energy. We think of oil and gas, that it's become this huge, massive growth market. Um, as, as, as a Nigerian citizen, when you know your colleagues, your friends there, do they feel that? Do they feel the same as perhaps someone sitting in Saudi Arabia would do, that they're, they're part of a sort of a you know, big hydrocarbon uh, nation? I think in Nigeria, there's clearly an awareness that we're dependent on export of hydrocarbon commodities for our foreign currency. There's also an awareness that we need to move away from this, not just for sustainability reasons, for economic reasons. I mean, we are in some ways a classic example of the resource curse. Now, over the past decade, various governments have done a lot to find ways to increase the proportion of our energy from sustainable sources. 
I would say this government has focused particularly on solar power. And that has been enthusiastically embraced, I would say. And we are dependent on oil and gas, but we're also determined to ensure that in the future, we embrace sustainability and move towards power um, production that is as um, non-oil and gas dependent as possible. When you think about, um, you know, the whole issue of kind of oil and gas, it's, it's one of those things that if you'd been having this conversation 15 years ago, if you'd been having this conversation 30 years ago, you'd be like, woohoo, brilliant. Yeah, um, you, you said something quite interesting there, that they, they want to move away. Why would they want to move away? I'm being a bit naive here, but if you've got that resource, you've got a nation that's a developing nation that's trying to make its life for its people better. Why wouldn't the government want to exploit that more, bring cheap oil and gas, bring cheap energy to, to the people? Why is it trying to, you know, try and go down this you know, more expensive renewable path at the same time? So let me qualify that. So firstly, most of our energy in Nigeria still comes from diesel. So we wow. need to move away from diesel for two reasons. One, we import most of our diesel and um, PMS. So even though we're exporting the raw material, we're importing and spending a lot of money importing the refined products. So we need to move away from that anyway. Now, given that we basically need to build up new power solutions, almost from scratch, to meet the growing power needs of the country, it makes sense to do that through a range of modern solutions. So we are focused on, or the government is focused on rolling out a gas master plan. Ladol Free Zone is also building gas-fired power plant. But in addition to that, and alongside that, we are developing renewable energy sources so that it will primarily be gas and uh, green energy solutions powering Nigeria in the future. Even though they may be more expensive, the government, and if, for example, for yourselves there where you are at Ladol, you're willing to make that investment at the same time, you're saying. So for, for Nigeria, it's cheaper to use gas. I mean, we have, I think we have more gas than we have crude. So gas is the cheaper option for yeah. us anyway. In terms of renewable energy solutions, so many, uh, for example, many solar power grids are a lot cheaper now than they were before. And there are also grants and assistance available for them to be imported wow. in Nigeria. And if you look at a future where, let's say, five years from now, these mini solar grids are being manufactured in Nigeria, that will actually be the cheapest um, energy solution for most people. Let me just turn to you, Stanley. I mean, looking across, you know, the continent, um, you know, we talked about, as I said at the beginning, the politics of it. What, What you're seeing there, what Amy's just described, is that a sort of common picture across the continent that, you know, it is a continent that's still got a lot of resources for hydrocarbons, but are you seeing the beginnings of an energy transition across Africa, Stanley? It's, um, I would say yes, and I would say yes and no, I would say, uh, because most countries don't really have a clear energy strategy. There are maybe a few countries that do have a clear energy strategy, whether it's an, a clear energy transition strategy or as energy strategy in general. And so that is not stopping the development, though, and that is not stopping the development to, to solar. 
uh, in a way, it is also a bit of a concern, at least from a sustainability perspective, that because of lack of strategy, it could be that we are actually investing a lot of resources into a solution that might not be the ultimate solution. Solar is the ultimate solution, but the current technology that is being put yeah. up might not be the best option for, for Africa and for most African settings. But is that because the, 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 there isn't this kind of, you know, pan-African energy strategy? Because the countries are obviously interconnected on the continent. You, you would think they, they should talk about how they could create some sort of interconnected grid and share storage and things like that. Is it still very much each country doing what it can with the resources it has? I actually would be not qualified to say whether the African Union, for example, is having any discussions about this. They probably are having a discussion about collaboration and opening up borders and things like that. But I'm not sure that they are talking about the Pan-African energy strategy. Yeah. They yeah. might be. I don't know. But, but it, do you think it needs one? It could benefit the... So, so here is how I think about it. I, I always, for me, everything comes back to sustainability. What Dr. Amy is talking about here is a master plan for how to move forward with the development, uh, even if it's a development of a, 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 an economic processing zone or economic free zone, but there is a master plan. And by having a master plan, you are actually making sure that you are channeling resources in a direction that is for the future. But if you don't have a master plan, that means there is no, no, no direction in a way. And that also means that the resources are not being channeled in a way that maximizes the resources, maximizes efficiency, and therefore maximizes, maximizes the rate of return on investment. Mm. Uh, Amy, when you, when you look at sort of, you know, what the picture is, you know, are there other places in, in Nigeria doing what you're doing? Are there other zones like this? Is this kind of, hey, because it's, Lagos and it's, it's, it's a big trendy city. This is all where it's going to happen, but this is a kind of one-off. Or, or can you see this becoming much more as we have, you know, across Germany, have the energy of in, in the UK. We've got different uh, ideas around how we transition into regional hubs and the creation of the, 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 the networks. What's happening in, in your country in particular, rather than talking about the wider continent? Is it a kind of you know, certain areas that are more wealthy, more educated, this is where they're, they're having a try. And actually where it's more rural and more poor, they're just still wholly relying on exploiting hydrocarbons. In terms of a pan-African strategy, um, I'll touch on that briefly and say, I think um, what, what I think we need is, is local pan-African manufacturing of energy solutions. So if we're building, um, energy uh, solutions, anything from a generator to the cabling um, to the batteries, I think what we need is a strategy to make sure that the engineering and manufacturing is done in Africa. But I don't think we would want a pan-African grid. And I think people have moved away from the concept of these huge infrastructure projects where you spend billions of dollars connecting to, you know, these sorts of 1970s type solutions. You know, these mini grids and these mini solutions, I think are the way forward. And that works much better for sustainable solutions, because then you can tailor your solution to the local environment. You can have waste to power where that makes sense, and you can have solar and you can have wind in different locations. And then, you know, neighboring grids can maybe share power. 
And yeah. so, so that's that. So in terms of um, our zone, special economic zones by their very nature are pockets of development. Ladol is very unique. We're a high value zone. Um, we're unique in, in, in the region. So, um, and, and I think we might be the only sustainable industrial special economic zone in Africa, at least, and, and one of the few in the world. However, across Nigeria, what is happening through both public and private sector schemes in zones and outside of them is a huge focus actually on rural electrification through mini power solutions. So some governors will have mini grids um, through gas-fired power plants. There's a national scheme for mini solar power grids, like 5,000 um, different um, areas with mini solar solutions. That's more in the north actually than in the south where Lagos is. So across the country, Power is a huge imperative. You can't get away from it. But being in a special economic zone that is this mini ecosystem, we can roll out a master plan that's focused on maximizing the utilization of the waste and the uh, resources that the zone has. Yeah, okay. William, let's just bring you in for a second here. I mean, why does energy transition matter in Africa? Because, you know, you, you talk to investors there. Many of them, I would think they'd say, hey, mate, there's a really good hydrocarbon market. I want a slice of that. Would people be willing to bring money in for funding these transitional projects? What's, what's, what's the view when you have these conversations across the continent and, and the nations that you work in? Well, I think there's a, a shared desire to reduce carbon footprint globally, and that cuts across generations and, and countries. However, you know, African um, governments still derive across the continent over 50% of their revenue from fossil fuel exports, yeah. including minerals. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you still have uh, Africa emits just under 3% of the world's carbon, uh, but it has close to 700 million people without reliable access to power. So it's all very well for us in the, let's call it the West, to champion energy transition. Yeah, which is the right thing to do, but that implies that there is something to transition to. That's in that turn, right. Yeah, absolutely. That, point. Yeah, that in turn requires the infrastructure to be in place for things like gas and renewables to be created and distributed to people's homes and, and to power industry. So there needs to be a dual approach. There needs to be the long-term planning that Stanley's talked about that incentivizes investment into renewables, um, and that must be policy-led. However, there needs to be a recognition that people need uh, light and power today, uh, and that will continue to come from hydrocarbons for some time. But in the interim, gas is, you know, is, is, is the big hope um, as the transitional power with its lower carbon footprint. Um, and, and in actual fact, the transition must be framed as an opportunity because so much of the minerals, your nickel, copper, uh, cobalt, um, et cetera, that is needed in renewable technology and in the batteries that we're going to be demanding in the future will still come from Africa. So there is a huge renewables opportunity for Africa, not only in uh, the production of the energy, but also in the minerals needed to power it. Um, but those are longer term. So there must be the balance between the jobs and revenue that's at stake today with the transition that everybody wants to make. And that will be driven by um, shareholders it will be driven by regulators um, and it will be driven by governments but but where's the money going right now William? i mean if when you talk to people 
So as we said, let's call it the West, thinking about investing. Are they seeing the opportunity to invest in where the money is now, i.e. the hydrocarbons, or are they willing to take a slightly longer term view and go, right, actually, as, as Amy said, you know, microgrids are on the way, so it'll be a massive deployment of solar maybe in the next decade. That's where I'm going to put my cash. You will see both. And, but for a traditional hydrocarbon project to get off the ground now, it either has to be extremely niche uh, with, with final um, revenue being derived out of existing assets with a very low cost base, or it needs to be on such scale that it just makes sense in, in terms of the numbers. So you need to have the scale of the gas projects you're seeing in Mozambique and those offshore Senegal and Mauritania. Your classic hydrocarbons project will fall somewhere between the two is less likely to raise the capital that it could quite easily have raised five, um, ten years ago. Um, and, and there is a, a, absolutely an appetite to invest into renewables and certain markets like Egypt, Ethiopia, Kenya, South Africa, Morocco are really championing that and, and leading on that and showing how it can be done. So you, you will, coming back to the transition point, it needs to be both at the same time because the lights mm. can't, can't just be literally switched off and back on from one source of power to the other. There's a couple of, um, a couple of things I would like to comment on. One of them is that... Um, Gas, we know that gas is an interim solution. So we need, yeah. to be, we need to be careful about how much investment goes into gas because we will end up with a situation where the transition becomes reduced. The, the possibility for transition is stalled by investing yes. in something that we know is not really the solution. Yeah, uh, That's one thing. And the other thing is that I think there is a general agreement amongst at least the major donor countries which are also going to influence the investors that we are not investing in hydrocarbons anymore. The United States has just made that decision about yeah, not spending cool. any money on, on, on uh, hydrocarbon-based development in, with the new government. The Swedish government has made that decision a long time ago. And I think the other European governments at least are going to follow suit as well. Because we have a current problem, which is that we need to reduce the carbon emissions. And, and we can actually transition with the new investment to, to give Africans more energy because they, most, of the, most of the time the infrastructure does not exist at the moment. So it's a perfect opportunity to transition into something that is new, something that is appropriate, something that is actually going to create jobs. And, and as Dr. M was saying, if that is done in such a way that the manufacturing, the assembly, the engineering is done in Africa, that would be a revolution for Africa. So do you, you're actually, what you're saying is that it may not even be a choice because, you know, the big investment uh, money from, from the West, let's call it the West again, is already decided it's not going to put its cash in the hydrocarbon reserves. So you think in, in a way there will be the, the pressure already for African governments to start looking at their sustainable renewable energy options rather than saying, hey, we've got lots of gas, come here, BP, or come here, Shell, and, you know, help us exploit it. That's what I'm saying. And I have been in a conversation with uh, Qatar Petroleum, I think it was 2010 or before that, where the conversation was, how can we transition, not transition in terms of technology, but in transition in terms of mindset, that the fact that our country is totally based on oil yeah. and, and hydrocarbons, and to even have a conversation, people panic because they can't see a future that's different from what they have right now. Of course. 
But then the discussion is how do we transition mentally to actually even start to look at the possibilities, the possibility that maybe looking at wind, looking at solar, looking at wave power might be what will move our, our country to a superpower, to a, to a development level that actually saves our people than investing in something that we know is dying. Amy, what's your view on this about where the money is going and where it will go? And also, what's your view on what, what the people want? Because, you know, my family is from India, you know, and I've said this many times before in this podcast, people are probably sick of hearing it, but, you know, when I used to go to Indian, in <laughs> William's sick of hearing it anyway, well, when I used to go in the 70s and 80s, you know, there was always power cuts, always that, and it was about just having some sort of reliable grid was what people wanted. Now, that project has sort of, ticked its box and in general power is much more stable in India now uh, and it's looking at sort of that but it still relies a lot on hydrocarbons. For the citizens of Nigeria, for the citizens of the other nations there, do you think they really care as long as they just get some stable power? And, and, and the second point is that point about the, where, whether the money might actually make the decision for the governments anyway. Uh, thank you. So great question. In terms of whether or not people care, in a very real sense in Nigeria, they probably don't. Right now, they are paying a lot of money either for inadequate power, um, but certainly for the most part, the power is very damaging to the environment and it's unreliable and it's expensive or they're not getting any power at all. So both you know, small industry, large industry and you know, the individual rural farmer just want power. However, entrepreneurs in Nigeria and the government in Nigeria have realized that it is becoming more affordable to go for mini power solutions. And a lot of these mini solutions, such as uh, mini solar grids in the north, are definitely cheaper than the alternative or and or the only option, because there is no alternative, but they're definitely cheaper than the alternative. And so we're kind of in a transition where the best option may end up being a sustainable option. And there are a lot of um, local, private and public initiatives and international initiatives trying to ensure that is increasingly the case in Nigeria. And as I say, I think the killer application in that case, the, the tipping point for that being a reality in Nigeria will be when we start to manufacture these solutions locally. And, and we're inching towards that. It really is inching. It's not like we're, we're hurtling towards a time where we will engineer and manufacture locally, but we're, we're slowly moving in that direction. I think in terms of the money, uh, you know, I have been, you know, proselytizing for probably decades now because I'm so old, but for a long time, <laughs> I have the definitions of bankability applied to private sector and even public sector in low-income, high-growth countries is ludicrous. So effectively, the definition of bankability, as in you can borrow money internationally if you can give them a guarantee that covers 150 to 200% of what's being lent, and you can demonstrate on the day that the money hits your account that you can pay it back with contracts in hand. So clearly, you can't develop on that basis. It is impossible. No. Um, no. Now what's happening is that DFIs and private equity shops and multilateral institutions have taken concrete steps to change definitions of bankability to include sustainability and to include a just transition. Meaning that 
you can get loans based on a market case moving away from the need for these arduous you know, uh, guarantees and things if your business is sustainable. So there's lots of initiatives around that. Um, the UNDP has, has done a mapping exercise and they produce standards that help with that. And at the same time, you can access, uh, you as a government and you as a large institution can access funding if you can demonstrate that you're part of a just transition. In other words, like Ladol, I set up my initial business relying on um, income from my oil and gas company clients, but I'm using that income to build a circular economy where I will primarily be serve, serving non-oil and gas. And that's really important because this thing that some uh, institutions did where they said, we're not going to invest in oil and gas was a little bit silly. Because yeah. if you're investing in Nigeria and you want to raise more than, you know, $10, then the only way you can meet the terms of bankability is if you're getting income from an oil and gas business. So this yeah. just transition concept is really I, important. I totally agree with that. And I think that this is a big of the, the thing that always worries me about these big statements from multinationals when they go, yeah, we're not going to do that. You've got to live in the real world and it's fine to give lip service for people here where we've got a very old energy system and you know you can afford to do the transition even though it's still expensive uh, and then to put those rules on places like India, Brazil, Africa, you know wherever where they, they're not, they have got those resources and you're saying don't use them or we're not going to pay for it. One thing I'd like to ask all of you is do you think Africa will technology jump so that you know you said earlier uh, Amy about kind of you know you don't look at these kind of old solutions for like kind of big pan African grids or what. Do you think actually decentralized power will, will have a real market in Africa because of the simple nature is, as Stanley said, the infrastructure is hardly there. So you might as well just build it all decentralized and local. And it does things on a smart grid that's just covering maybe, you know, two or 3,000 uh, hectares rather than going across the country. Um, anyone on that view about a technology jump? Uh, I'm not going to answer the question. I'm going to push it on to Stanley and William because I'd love to hear what you think. Because my, <laughs> my position is I would love it to happen, but I know that there are huge forces in the status quo that are trying to stop us from being able to do that. So I'd love to hear Stanley and William's kind of global view. Go on, Stanley, what's your take? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you, you can't have this discussion without talking about the fact that bankability, whether you are talking about at a private or at a, at a national level, has to do with the issue of trust. My take on this is that because of the distributed energy systems are by their nature distributed, that means you are already decentralizing the decision-making powers. Gives it gives Africa a bigger possibility for actually leapfrogging and and having newer technologies. I have a I, I heard of a story from Nigeria actually, which was that young people are going back into farming because they can use the latest technology for doing farming. And 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 uh, I have a, a, a story from Zimbabwe where there is a, a company uh, called uh, Mukonotronics, which is doing trainings, the engineering we're talking about building solar panels, building the solar infrastructure in Zimbabwe, training young people to do that, and then going out into the villages and, and putting up distributed solar panels, the solar systems that, that are powering water and putting up the condition that it has to be for, for productive purposes. 
because that's what we need. We need the energy to be for productive purposes. And, and, and that is already happening. There are some pockets of examples where this is happening. That's interesting, actually, what you said there. That, you know, and it is about the young, you know, that, that where they go, we will follow because they will be the ones that are leading us in the future. Uh, William, what, what, what's your take about whether a technology jump happens, is inevitable, is desirable uh, across the continent? Yeah, I suspect I don't have any any secret answers on this one, but I think you can already see lots of examples of off-grid solar solutions using technology and delivering electricity to rural communities in a way that just wasn't possible 10 years ago. So there's no reason why that wouldn't continue and accelerate, but it's not gonna deliver the massive power needed by industry um, and, and economies at large. So that's where the question comes in. How will that technology leap happen on a scale that will actually drive the entire economy? And is that why institutions, be it um, US government that Stanley referenced or others, are refusing to put money into hydrocarbons because they want to put a market down that says, we've still got the money, but we're not putting it into those sort of projects. But if you come up with a significant renewables project or low carbon option, then we will consider it. And maybe they're trying to incentivize that sort of thinking and policy-led behavior. And, and that could be at a level that we already can do now. So carbon capture being an area that um, is getting a lot of renewed attention, having been put on the back burner for a while, pardon the pun. Uh, but you know, there may be, <laughs> there may be technolo technological ways that carbon capture can be done now uh, in a more efficient and lower, lower, lower impact way than was possible when it was first conceived. But I'm not holding my breath for some technological miracle that will deliver mass power in a way that um, it is currently delivered by hydrocarbons. I think it needs to be, um, like we said earlier, it needs to be step by step. And the key word, as Amy said, is a just transition. It can't be all or nothing overnight. It must be just as in fair to the people on the ground who are going to have to adjust their lifestyles and the impact it will have on jobs, et cetera. My last question before we end is, uh, I'll put it to Amy and, and Stanley first, I think really. Do you have hope, uh, and you've sort of alluded to this, Amy, that as in Africa goes through this energy transition, it is African. And what I mean by that, it's not, you know, big Western companies going in, hello, we'll take your stuff, we'll build all the stuff, we'll still own all the assets, and then we'll give you some of this power, but we're basically exploiting your resources. And that's the sort of stuff that frankly pisses me off that goes on already regarding, you know, things that when we look at the, the cobalt mining and the lithium mining, we could do a whole nother chapter on that. Well, I won't go down that road. But are you hopeful, uh, Amy first and then Stanley, that actually African technology companies, African businesses can start to say, we will lead this energy transition. We will start to develop and use the resources. And it'll be up to us whether we then export and make money out of this. But our primary goal is to lift the lives of our people with what we build. Amy, let me start with you. So, so the simple answer is we don't have a choice now but to do it ourselves. And I think that's fantastic. Um, one of the things that COVID cemented in the minds of our leaders and I think the people definitely the people across the continent, but certainly in Nigeria, is that we are on our own and we have no choice but to develop solutions for our growing population 
that include widespread industrialization. And the other thing, and maybe the more important thing that COVID changed is, is an understanding in the West that they have to allow us to do this, either yeah. because they've got too many problems of their own to solve. So, you know, it, it, even if they try and, you know, continue the, the, the norms that have ensured that we couldn't industrialize as much as possible. It's not, you know, all their fault. We've helped as well, obviously. But, you know, one, you know, they, they, they can't afford to focus on, on what's going on in Africa. They've got to cure them, you know, themselves. And two, having a, a vibrant, industrialized, sustainable Africa is critical to global wealth and prosperity. So, so I think we have to, I think we've cottoned on to that. I think a lot of international funds now are focused on genuinely enabling that by putting money in the hands of African private sector. But we have a long way to go to actually achieve it. Um, but I'm hopeful, I'm, I'm hopeful and I'm excited about, about what I see happening on the ground. Yeah, I, I, I am hopeful and I am with, with just one thing that if I borrow from William, I'm not going to hold my breath because there's one thing that needs to happen, which is that African governments need to start investing in their own countries. Yes. <laughs> and and, and uh, I, putting it crudely, if you, if you, why are we investing so much money in our armies? And if you took half of that money and put it into energy, yeah. you can transform any of the African countries in a in a very, very limited short amount of time. Then we can do it at our own, within our own values, within our own, our own requirements. Uh, so we cannot go to the West begging for money and complain that they give us conditions, you know? Let's put our own money in education. Let's put our own money in technology and develop our own countries and in agriculture as well. Yeah, I think that's a very, very fair point. Um, in a word, are you hopeful that in 10 years time, we'll have a very different looking continent where energy transition is underway. No, I'm definitely hopeful. In fact, you know, my whole um, career for the past 15 years has been about developing that and making sure it happens. So, so I'm hopeful, I'm excited. I, it, it's gonna happen, we don't have a choice. It's just a question of if it happens quickly or slowly. William? In a word, yes. And we collectively, there must be a push for the energy resource of Africa to bring about socio-economic development and, and for it to be a source of prosperity, not for the need to transition to leave behind millions of people in, 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 be it in poverty or in darkness. But there, there, there must be a recognition that we cannot take a one-size-fits-all approach from predominantly from Western institutions and Western governments and say, this is our plan, now what's yours? You know, and, and why can't you copy and paste ours? There yes. has to be an allowance and a time for Africa to come up with its own plan that may look different from the plans that have come up by fancy EU countries or European unions or G20s and G7 summits. And it may need more time, but they have to be given um, and respectfully given the opportunity and time to come up with a plan that is right for their, their own people. And what about you, Stanley? You and I are kind of on the same cynical boat, I think, sometimes, but go on. Are you hopeful? I am hopeful because I have, I have had an opportunity during COVID to run a number of cafes where we discuss issues of Africa. And the, the capacity of the young people is what gives me hope. 
you know, mm-hmm. those young people who are educated and they have this, their values are so directed towards developing a more just social system in Africa is what gives me hope. Because without that just social system, which will also lead to a just social governance, we are not going to be able to do it. But I think the young people is what is really the, the, the hope here. So, so what, mm-hmm. I, what, I would, what I'm praying for always is to get the, the average age limit for presidents to go to below 50 and then <laughs> on our way. <laughs> Let's have our first presidents in, in their 20s. That'd be good. Uh, Amy, uh, Stanley and William, thank you very much for joining uh, me today. And thanks very much for you to listen to this podcast, Guy Says No. Remember, you can subscribe at any time to futurenetzero.com and we'll be back with another episode next week.